Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning, and thank you for your gracious gift of allowing us to open our eyes this morning, to come here to Wellspring, to live another day in which we can bring you glory by how we live and the words that we say and the thoughts that we think. Heavenly Father, I do pray that this morning we would seek you, we would seek truth from your word. Um, there is a lot of loud voices of the world trying to get our attention, trying to pull us away from you. God, keep our eyes focused on your word, on your truth. Um, keep us walking the straight and narrow path, following you. Um, we love you, Lord, and we are so thankful for the freedom and opportunity to meet together, the freedom to open your word, um, the availability that we have access to it um, whenever we want. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. All right, so we are um, going to get started. So by now, you've probably realized that each morning we start by doing our disciplines. We, I usually say, turn over your notebook and let's get started, but don't turn over your notebook. <laughs> so today we're going to do our, our discipline uh, time just a little bit different than we normally do. So the top sheet of your outline um, that you picked up has our Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines written on it, but it has some blanks. And, um, you know, our goal here in Wellspring is never for this to feel like a class or like memorization or anything like that. But it's still helpful to be familiar with the disciplines. In fact, over Christmas break, I was talking to my sister and she was asking what they were. And it was like this moment of like a brain freeze. I couldn't remember what they were. So I think it's helpful to review them. So go ahead and take a few minutes, try to fill in the blanks. If you don't know what they are, that's totally okay. You're not being graded. You're not turning this in. Um, we're going to go over it together. I don't have like a red pen. The, the teacher in me desires that, but I'm not doing that. So just go ahead and do the best you can trying to fill in the blanks. just doing uh, the blanks on the front page. Right. It was for me when I did it the first time, too. I remember Anne did this. Yep. Anne did this, like, I don't know. Eight years ago or something I don't remember and I remember sitting there going I don't know I don't know <laughs> yeah. right right because the wording changed <laughs>
All right, so let's go ahead and go through them. It's okay if you didn't finish. We'll just go through them together, and then you can fill in the blanks um, as, you, as we get there. So go ahead and yell out the answers as we get there. I'm just going to read. So the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live, a Bible would be acceptable also, <laughs> so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus the church in its gospel purpose. Awesome. Okay, discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart awesome, worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular the awesome. Discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline three is ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Awesome. Okay, then Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your for it is the wellspring of awesome. Good job. Nice job. Yes. Um, so today, when we do our discipline discussion, um, I want to spend a little time talking about a different aspect of shepherding our hearts. Um, what we're going to talk about here is mostly focused on discipline one, but since they're all so connected, it will obviously spill over to two and three. So <clears throat> I'm a sinner and I sin. You're a sinner and you sin. By our nature, we're sinners. We know that. Um, we've been given new hearts, but we still live in this flesh and we still sin. And we aim to fight that sin. We, we aim to put off the deeds of the flesh, but until we're in glory with Jesus, we will still sin. So when we sin, what do we do next? So we need to repent. So let's talk about what repentance is. Repentance is twofold. It's both being sorry and being changed. And we can be sorry about our sin and still not be changed. And we can even change our actions or our words and not truly be grieved over our sin. And neither of those things are what we would call repentance. And often people can feel sorry if they're caught. You know, they get caught and they get embarrassed about their sin. But sometimes that kind of an attitude can lead to even greater sins, like sneakiness or making excuses or callousness. But hopefully as believers, um, as we are shown our sin through God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes through the hopefully gentle rebuke of a friend or family member. So when we realize we have sinned, we feel sorry or guilty. And things like being caught or embarrassed or having regret or feeling guilt are means of God's grace in our lives. They're good. God uses the people and the circumstances around us to show us our sin. Um, but feeling guilty or feeling sorry is not the same thing as repentance. So. What does our repentance toward God need to look like? How can we go from sorry to repentance? And I'm going to have six quick points in here um, about what repentance can look like, how we respond. So number one, when sin is revealed to us, be thankful. That's hard to do. So even as we are sinning against God, God is using those moments to show us the true nature of our heart. We can be thankful for that. And don't forget those moments or those feelings of guilt. We don't want to push them away and suppress them. We want to commit to walking in repentance. Number two is remember the gospel. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're justified, you're forgiven, you're loved by your father. You can use that blue chart that was passed out at the beginning of the year to shepherd your heart. And those truths found there of being justified and forgiven, they should only spur us on to fight our sin more with God's strength. They're never an excuse to overlook any sin. Number three, we want to pray for God's help. So we want to confess our sin to God. We want to thank him for showing us our sin. 
and ask him to help us fight our sin well. Number four, remember it's God's word that changes our hearts. So we want to use biblical language. We want to look to God's word to define our sin. We don't want to let the world define our sin as if it were a problem that we have no control over. The world's labels are real problems resulting from sin. You want to see your sin through Jesus' eyes. You want to dig deep into God's word to seek the true nature of your sin. <clears throat> Maybe write, go study Proverbs and write out every verse um, addressing the sin you're repenting of. For instance, if it's anger, let's say, go through Proverbs, write out each verse that addresses anger, and so on. Um, we can study the lists of sin throughout the Bible. So Galatians 5, Romans 1, Revelation 21 um, have some lists of sin. Let's read Romans 1 together. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to read Romans 1, starting at verse 29. <clears throat> all right, Romans 1, 29 through 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So, did you notice that God's word puts disobedience, gossip, and envy, sins that we might minimize in our own lives, in the same list as murderers and haters of God? That's how God sees our sin. And it is for those sins that Jesus had to die. So we want to see our sin the same way God sees our sin. Number five, we want to put on. So Ephesians 4, this is pretty familiar. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, tells us that a believer is one who has put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we must first put off our old sin practices of anger, laziness, bitterness, and put on something else instead. And we find those listed in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So where we once had anger, we put on peace. Where we had laziness, we now put on self-control. Where we had bitterness, we replace it with love. Number six, lastly, we pray again. Thank God for truth from his word, for his salvation, the ability to change and grow through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word. And we want to remember that brokenness over sin is a part of victory over sin, and it brings us back to the cross and back to Jesus' victory over sin in our lives. So, when we talk about shepherding our hearts, we can and we must shepherd our heart through true biblical repentance every single day. So, let's encourage each other in that. Um, normally now, the person teaching the lesson would come up, but I'm already here. So, <laughs> I am teaching this morning. Um, uh, we are going to be learning from the book of Proverbs. Um, so let's change gears a little bit, done with disciplines, now into um, our lesson for today. This is focusing on discipline two, which is the home. Um, so the book of Proverbs, most of it was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of David. He was king over Israel. Um, <clears throat> in 1 Kings 3, we read the account of the Lord appearing to Solomon in a dream. And he tells Solomon that he can ask for anything he wants. And Solomon asks for wisdom. Um, and the word there is that he asks for a discerning mind. So Solomon is considered the wisest man to ever live. He wrote 29 chapters in Proverbs, and they are full of wisdom, which we can learn from. So <clears throat> the phrase discerning mind, um, what Solomon asked for, it literally means a listening heart or a hearing heart, which um, it means having a heart that hears with a mind to obey. So um, 
for those of you that are moms in here or maybe were children at some point. It's very similar to what a mom means when she says to her children, listen to me. It means listen to what I'm saying and then do it. Obey. So Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom and he asks for discernment and God gave it to him in abundance. So we can benefit from that great gift. So <clears throat> a proverb, lowercase p proverb, um, it's a short saying that states a general truth. Um, there's a lot out there in the world and you're probably familiar with some. Um, there's ancient Chinese proverbs that like give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. Um, but we know that proverbs, uppercase proverbs, from the Bible are inspired by God and um, we must read, study, and learn from them. Uh, the book of Proverbs is a book of poetry. It's not poetry that we're familiar with, like roses are red and violets are blue kind of poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. Um, it was written differently. Um, it's a development of ideas in an inventive way. So a proverb's not a magical formula, um, but it teaches wisdom. It also requires wisdom for correct interpretation and application. Um, the entire book of Proverbs co compares and contrasts wisdom and folly. Um, do you remember when, back when you were in school, um, we would make a Venn diagram. I don't know if you guys remember what that is. It was those two big circles and they kind of overlapped in the middle. And in one you wrote all the characteristics of subject A and in this one, all the characteristics of subject B and where they overlapped, you wrote what they had in common. <clears throat> this is nothing like that. Wisdom and folly have nothing in common. That center section is, is blank. They have nothing in common. So let's talk about what wisdom is. This will be the first blank on your outline. Wisdom is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. I'll say it again because it's a lot of words. Wisdom is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. That's Y-A-H-W-E-H in case it took me a while to figure that out. Um, wisdom is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. So Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. <clears throat> Dan Phillips, he wrote a book called God's Wisdom in Proverbs. Here's a quote from him. God's centered wisdom will encompass all our endeavors, including excellence in relationships, personal pursuits, finances, child rearing, the whole shooting match. But the constant backdrop of these living skills will be the imperative of a life lived in reverence for God, in conscious application of his revealed wisdom, and dedicated to promoting his glory. So, then in contrast to a wise person, a fool is a stupid, wicked, vile, impious person. But we know there are degrees of folly, right? Ranging from the still reachable naive all the way up to the hardened scoffer. And I think, hopefully, we would all agree that we want to be the wise person. We want to live well in the fear of Yahweh. So how do we do that? How do we get this wisdom? Back to Proverbs 1-7, it's on your notes. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we must fear the Lord. So let's talk about fear for a minute. I did some research. Cat sardophobia, it's the morbid, an irrational fear of cockroaches. Um, and then this one, my least favorite, it's called melissophobia, and it's the fear of bees or bee stings. I don't like that name, but that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about here. This fear that we're talking about is not an emotion. It's a fear directed toward Yahweh. So God has revealed himself to us, and if we want true wisdom, we must start with him. We must have a vital living relationship with that one true God. And it's easy to say, oh, the fear of God, without truly understanding what we mean. The fear of God is produced by the word of God, which reveals him, his mind, and his ways. 
So we must approach God's word with humility. So let's talk about humility. Humility here that we're talking about isn't simply thinking less of ourselves than we should, while that's an aspect of it. It's thinking as much of God as we should. So genuine humility starts with comparing myself to the infinite God. We want to stand before the true and living God in all of his holiness and vastness and glory. Um, Derek Kidner, another author, wrote that the fear of Yahweh is that filial relationship, which in the most positive of senses, puts us securely in our place and God in his. So we each hold in our hands the completed canon of scripture. We have it on our phones. We have it on our bookshelves. So why do we often treat it like it's insufficient, like we can find wisdom elsewhere? If wisdom starts with the fear of Yahweh, and the fear of Yahweh starts with the word of God, then where should we go every single day, every single time we need wisdom? To the word of God. All right, let's look at Proverbs 14 now. So it's written there at the top of your notes. Or feel free to turn to it, um, whatever you'd rather do. Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So, home is the first place where we display all that the gospel has done in us because of Christ's work in, on the cross. But it's also the first place where we see we must fight for that gospel influence in our lives. Daily, there are new opportunities to live out gospel truths. All we must do is literally open our eyes every morning, and they're there. So, like we've learned before, Proverbs is poetry, so we have to try to discern what Solomon is saying here. He's not talking about physically building a house. We're not expected to go home and pick up a hammer and some nails and build an addition in our front yard. Um, instead, in this verse, the word build is referring to caring for our households and causing it to flourish. We're not talking about simply rearranging furniture or following the latest Pinterest trend or doing whatever Joanna Gaines tells us to do so that our houses look pretty. The wise woman blesses those whom God has placed in her household, whether that be her parents or her siblings, her husband, her children, her roommates, whoever that may be. And a wise woman will be intentional <clears throat> to love and to do good to those she lives with. And she works with all diligence. She seeks to profit those in her home. So, in contrast, the foolish woman tears her house down, even if unintentionally. She may be given to contentiousness or ungratefulness or bitterness. She may use her words as a demolition tool. And it will destroy the people most precious to her. Through the grace of God, and without deserving so, we have been redeemed through Christ. So, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God has imputed Christ's righteousness to you positionally, but even though we're redeemed, we're still in that mixed condition. Remember the blue chart, we're in the middle. We're in the midst of progressive renewal. So, we still sin, we all do. We talked about this earlier. One day when we're in heaven with Christ, we will be in an unmixed, perfect condition. But for the time being, you know, there's times that we still look and we still act like the foolish woman. And I like the analogy of a cup of coffee. What spills out of your cup of coffee when it gets bumped? Coffee. So what spills out of your heart when it's bumped reveals what's inside your heart. And what is in your heart at any given moment is going to come out, and that residue of sin will be revealed. So, what can we do to fight that? We must be diligent to renew our minds with Scripture. Um, it's really easy to let the voices of the world creep in. There are voices that say, you deserve this or that, or moms need me time. Um, but the more we know God and the more we know his word, the more we can be a doer of the word, and that's how we can build up our homes rather than destroying them and destroying those that live in them. Jesus died and rose from the dead, so that can be a reality. So this building of our homes 
has a domino effect. The more we build up our own home, the more we build up others' homes, and that's the whole church body. So <clears throat> this was a while ago, but south of the Chandler Mall, there used to be this giant cement skeleton of a building. <clears throat> um, it was vacant for about eight years. And then one day someone bought the land and they brought in a wrecking ball to, to demolish the building. I mean, people literally were lining the streets to watch this building come down. <clears throat> so this large iron ball hung from a giant crane, and as the crane operator swung the ball back and forth, the sturdy concrete smashed into pieces, and eventually the whole building came down. It was a pile of rubble. So this is how you might be envisioning how the foolish woman is, a wrecking ball destroying her home. But she can also be like a termite, this tiny little microscopic insect that by little by little damages the structure before anyone can even see evidence of damage. And if the homeowner doesn't take care of it, their home's gonna be destroyed. So this destruction can happen if we're not diligent to bring our hearts to the word of God. And the more our eyes are turned to Jesus, the more diligently we will pursue knowing him. And the more we gaze upon his character, the more we will grow in holiness and bless those in our homes. I would hope, save maybe Athaliah, that no woman would willingly say she wants to tear down her own home. But when our aim is not to glorify God, but rather to glorify self, that's exactly what we do. The foolish woman is driven by personal desire rather than the glory of God. And that's a battle that we must fight for. So have you ever ridden a bike uphill? really, really hard. And if you stop pedaling at any time, you just roll backwards. The same goes for our battle against selfishness or impatience. Or maybe when somebody in your home says something contrary to your desires or plans or opinions, we must respond in a way that brings glory to God. And we glorify him when our response displays his kindness and his patience. So we must prepare for battle. And we must always be aware of our hearts so that what spills out when bumped will be the good that is stored up in our hearts because we have purpose to know Christ and his character. We have the power to bless and build up the lives of those around us, but we also have the power to tear down and destroy. Because of that new heart given to believers by God, we are called wise, but we know that while the power of sin has been broken, and the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ at the cross, the presence of sin still remains. We have sin's residue on our hearts. But I don't know about you. Do you ever feel like you're becoming more and more sinful as you grow in the Lord? I do. Thankfully, that's because of the grace of God. He makes us more and more aware of our sin as we learn about God and grow in love for him. And it's a gift that he doesn't reveal all of our sin at once. And it's a gift that he's faithful to show us slowly and patiently where we need to repent and turn from our sin. So when we see the word fool, there's two things we ought to think of. A fool is the one whose only hope is for God to give him or her a new heart. But a fool is also the one who knows God, but is acting foolishly in this moment. Her flesh is ruling. So believers in Jesus will display some deeds of the flesh because of our mixed condition, but we will not be characterized by them. Our lives will be most characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about this a little bit ago in Galatians 5. Mostly characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the book of Proverbs helps us to evaluate that residue of sin, that residue of foolishness still remaining in our hearts. And God reveals sin in our hearts so that we can pursue him and his holiness for his glory. So you all have a home. Some of you live with your parents, your siblings, your children, your husbands, some live with roommates, and some people live alone. But everyone's living situation is a season and seasons always change. So let's look at Proverbs 14.1 again. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So 
the wise woman, while fully dependent on God and his word, that's discipline one, figuratively speaking, builds up the prosperity of her household. So number one on your outline is wise women in Proverbs. And Proverbs is full of descriptions of a wise woman. I have picked out a few verses, but there are so many more. Let's go through these. <clears throat> Proverbs 11.16a says, A gracious woman attains honor. Proverbs 19.14b, A prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So what makes this woman excellent? The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. So wise is often seen in two ways. These are gonna be the next <clears throat> blanks on your outline. Letter A, the wise woman listens well. There's an eagerness to receive instruction as well as rebuke. Proverbs 8.33, a wise woman heeds instruction and does not neglect it. Proverbs 9.8, she loves the one who reproves her. Does this describe us, loving the one who reproves us? So when I was a teenager and I was learning how to drive, I drove a VW Bug. And I don't know if you've ever driven one, um, these things have ginormous blind spots. When you're making a right or a left or changing lanes, I never actually knew what was in my blind spot. And I really had no way to see it unless the person I was driving with said, oh yeah, it's safe to go. Um, so that's the very different definition of a blind spot. We can't see what's in it. And um, that's why God uses others in our lives to help us. It's good for us. We're an instrument in each other's lives to be used to fulfill God's purpose. And we should welcome this help in our pursuit of Christ. Let's keep going through our verses here. Proverbs 10, 8 and 15, 31. Um, a wise woman receives commands and she listens to life-giving reproof, unlike the babbling fool, which only leads to ruin. Proverbs 19, 20. A wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. Proverbs 9, 9. A wise woman, when taught, will become wiser still. And then 834, a wise woman listens to wisdom. So a teachable spirit begins with a humble spirit. It's a spirit that recognizes we are the greatest of sinners. And a teachable spirit is descriptive of a woman who knows she needs to change and grow and is eager to do so, so she listens well. And sometimes this includes inviting others to speak into our lives, maybe asking them what they see that needs attention that maybe we don't see. So the second way wisdom is seen, this is B on your outline. The wise woman speaks wisely. Proverbs 16:23. the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. And then our very familiar Wellspring verse, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So your mouth is a reflection of your heart. Likewise, your mouth is able to be restrained by your heart. So that's why it's so important to guard our hearts. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. When your cup of coffee is bumped, what comes out? We know challenges will come. You will sin, and I will sin, and we will be sinned against. Trials will come, and whatever is inside my heart will be revealed. Let's um, take a minute to look through what the Bible has to say about our words. These are written on your outline, too. Proverbs 10, 19. A wise woman restrains her lips. Proverbs 12, 18. A wise woman isn't rash. Instead, she brings healing. 13, 14. A wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. Proverbs 14.3, a wise woman's lips protect. Proverbs 15.2, a wise woman makes knowledge acceptable. And Proverbs 15.7, her lips spread knowledge. So 
these verses show us that a wise woman must first guard her heart well so that what comes out of her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, winsome. So we are sinners, living with sinners. So the question is, how will I respond? Will I build up or will I tear down? And thankfully, God has graciously given us everything we need to listen well, to respond rightly, and to speak wisely. Okay, so now we know what Proverbs has to say about what the wise woman looks like and sounds like and how she can build up her home. But Proverbs also speaks about many ways that we can tear down our homes. So number two on your outline is the foolish women in Proverbs. So letter A, directly underneath that, the foolish woman is sexually immoral. So God calls for us to be pure. And that means we view others as brothers and sisters, seeking to speak, act, dress, and even think in a way that does them good. And that helps them to see Christ in us. And it spurs them on to love God and be pure themselves. So the only relationship that is to go beyond that is if we are married, that relationship with that one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It is pure and it's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually provocative or immodest in our dress or even thinking sinfully sexually about any other person is immoral. So like any other sin, sexual immorality is birthed in our heart. So even if we think we aren't behaving in a way that is immoral, we still need to check our hearts. So we can ask ourselves questions like, where are my affections? What do I desire that I shouldn't? Am I content with what God has given me or with what God has not given me? Am I conducting myself in a way that is loving? In my dress, in my conduct, in my speech? And those kinds of questions can help us identify if there's any roots of sexual immorality in our hearts. And we must guard our hearts and our minds by being very careful about what we watch or read, right? There are a lot of worldly views that penetrate entertainment, TV, movies, books, social media, and we cannot let that kind of entertainment entertain us. We must not be entertained by what Christ died for. Um, there are some verses uh, under this point on your outline. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time today to go through all the verses in every section, so feel free to Take that home and go through them on your own. We're going to move on to letter B. The foolish woman is idle. I-D-L-E. Laziness and idleness tear down our homes, and they are characteristics of a foolish woman. Proverbs 10.4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So... Laziness is opting for what is comfortable for ourselves rather than what is best for others. And maybe one way this can be seen is in the discipline of our children. My eye must be on what is best for my child and not my own pleasure or comfort. Laziness or idleness is believing that good things should come our way without having to work for them. And it's willingness to permit ourselves to not do things we know we should. Again, there's a lot of verses in your outline. Uh, feel free to go through them on your own. We are going to run out of time if I go through them all. So we're gonna move on to letter C. The foolish, foolish woman is contentious. So contentious means to be quarrelsome, given an angry debate, strife, or discord. So at our old house, our master bathroom faucet leaked and it was just a tiny slow drip. And it only happened when the faucet was turned towards warm or hot. So often we had to go over and twist that handle over to cold to make it stop dripping. But sometimes we'd forget. And sometimes I would lay awake in bed at night, totally exhausted. And in the darkness, all I could hear was drip, drip, drip. And it literally enough to make you go crazy. 
So Proverbs 19.13 uses that same illustration when it says, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. So this foolish, repetitive behavior has made you only background noise that exhausts the patience of your household and results in tearing it down. Proverbs 21.9 says, it is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And then verse 19 of that same chapter, it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Vexing means to provoke, to stir up or debate in anger. And it might look like someone who has to have the last word. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16 says, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and he grasps oil with his right hand. So we've talked about the Israelites before, right? How they saw God do wondrous miracles and yet they still complained and they still grumbled. And they are a sobering example of contentiousness. So we're going to look again at these Israelites. So turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All right, we're going to start in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was not water for the people to drink. Okay, so the Israelites had a real need, right? They needed water. But their problem was their response to that need. Look at verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So did you ever find yourself responding like this? Grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining are signs of contention that will tear down our homes and our relationships when our hearts are filled with discontent. But thankfulness cultivated in our hearts kills contentiousness. And there is always something to be thankful for when you know Christ. We can think on all that God has done for us as believers. We can think on what we truly deserve. We can think on all that he has given us. We can think on all that he gives us to enjoy now in the way of earthly blessings. He is always at work in our lives and in our circumstances, and God is always good. We can trust him. So what can we learn from the Israelites? Here's the blanks to fill in on your outline. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Contentiousness breeds more sin. Maybe grumbling, fear, and accusations. One sin can lead to another. Sin always has companions. Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. So I know I've mentioned this up here before, the Greener Grass Conspiracy. I think Anne talked about it as well. But the Greener Grass Conspiracy calls complaining telling a lie about God. We're not trusting God's goodness when we complain. We're not trusting that what God has for us in this very moment is his best for us. We're not believing that he actually cares for us or that he's at work for our good. It will do us good to look again at the cross. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember that God has provided for our greatest need in salvation. And life isn't easy, right? It's hard. But no matter what we face, we can be confident and we can be comforted in each circumstance because we know it has passed through our Lord's hands and he loves us and he's working all things for our good and our glory and God knows. So let's think back to these Israelites. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years and God was faithful, yet they still continued to be contentious. So we're going to look at some characteristics of contentiousness. Um, we're at the top of page five. It says contention is stirred up by. So the first point is anger. 
Proverbs 29:22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So the second point is arrogance. Proverbs 28:25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts the Lord will be enriched. So contention is stirred up by anger, arrogance, and gossip. The third one is gossip. Proverbs 26, 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Okay, so those are three things that stir up contention. Let's talk about what contention creates. Defensiveness. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So to explain that a little bit, when a city was under attack, the people of the city would bar themselves in for protection. And this kind of defensive action in our home will only bring division. And when there's contention and one party hides away from another, whether it be emotionally or physically or spiritually, then there's withdrawal from one another. And it's important when we encounter anger or withdrawal in a relationship that we want to look behind those behaviors to try to discern what the real issue is. So instead of defending ourselves, we can try something like this. I just realized how concerned or hurt you must be about whatever your situation is. Please help me to understand your point of view more clearly so we can work together on this probably have a better response. So the more quickly we address each other's anger with gentleness, and kindness, and the love of Christ, the more often we will see a positive result which glorifies our Lord, which is our goal, right? So who among us has not been hurt by the words of another person? And who hasn't regretted something that we ourselves have said? And who among us can say, my words are always appropriate to the situation and they are always kindly spoken. Not me, I don't think any of us. So what can we do? Next on your outline. Um, we are going down to, where are we? I, letter I, so it's page six, letter I. We must forsake contention. So communication, is about the words we say, but it's just as much about the words that we choose not to say. And it's about the tone and the timing of those words. So we must refuse to let our talk be driven by our passions and our, purpose, our personal desires, but instead by God's purposes. That is forsaking contention. So sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ, but have you ever considered what sanctification will cost? you? Are you prepared to forsake contention, to forsake grumbling and complaining when we don't understand or we don't agree with what God is doing? God has promised to finish the work he began in us, and the work he began began in salvation, and that ongoing work is the process of sanctification. We are being renewed day by day. So when gold is refined, it's heated up to melting, and all the dross or the impurities rise to the surface and they're scooped off. And then the gold is cooled. And then it's heated again and they're scooped off and then it's cooled. And then it's heated again and again and again. God is in the process of refining us. And we can't demand instant change in someone else, just like we can't demand pure gold without heat and time and patience. We still live in a fallen world. So there's to be disappointment and hurt and failure and sin and we're going to be sinned against. Galatians 5, go ahead and turn there, helps show us how to choose our words carefully so that we can forsake contention. Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 13. Galatians 5, 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
So let's take a second to evaluate. Are our relationships shaped by love? Are they showing us in the servant posture? Are we asking God to reveal how we can be used to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds? Are we making it our aim to look for ways to comfort, encourage, warn, or teach each other? When we are faced with a difficult relationship, it is important to view that difficulty as an opportunity to minister in the grace of God through love. We have a choice to make in that moment of disagreement, and we should seek to serve and not be served. And that is what builds up our home and our church body. James 4, 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So either we are living as a servant of the Lord, accepting his call to serve those around us, or we are living to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and expecting others to gratify those cravings as well. So back in Galatians 5, we're still there. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the problems that we encounter in relationships are not simply horizontal problems, person to person. They're fundamentally vertical, person to God. So if I am living for God's glory, if my love for him stands above my love for anyone or anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything I do and say, wherever he puts me. And one sure fruit of such a heart is that I will love my neighbor as myself. So in contrast, when a desire for an idol, whatever that may be, replaces my love for God, the result will be conflict in relationships. And as we begin to view others as obstacles for what we desire, something other than God, that's a problem. Conflict has vertical roots that produce horizontal fruit of fighting and quarreling. Love for God makes me want to keep his law and that will always result in practical love toward my husband, my child, my roommate, my parents, whoever I live with. We're still in Galatians. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So when we live for ourselves and not for God, we bite and devour one another. We're willing to chew someone up to satisfy our own appetites. When our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but by sinful demands and desires, we'll become angry and disappointed with one another and we'll destroy each other with our words. Communication is intended to build up, to strengthen, to encourage one another, and change at the heart level fundamentally alters the way we speak to one another. Okay, verses 16 and 17, still in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, as long as indwelling sin remains, there will be a war within our hearts. And we must always be aware of that conflict because to forget about the presence of indwelling sin immediately will lead to destructive talk. And I think all of us wrestle with conflicting desires. When something goes wrong, we might desire an appropriate godly solution, but there's also other desires operating as well. We might desire to shift the blame. We might desire to separate ourselves from responsibility in this situation or to rehearse all the other times this person has failed us. We might desire to hurt that person just the same way we're hurting. We might desire to share their failure with someone else, but we build up our homes by saying no to any kind of communication that flows from those desires. Building up our homes means we're refusing to speak in any way that is contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce in me and others as found in his word. So if I am seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me and not give room for the enemy, I must be willing to examine my talk 
with the mirror of the word of God. So if your child is sick, you pay attention to their symptoms. If your car is making a funny noise, you listen carefully so you can tell the mechanic so he can figure out what's wrong with it. So pay attention to your heart through the lens of God's word. You need to ask yourself questions like, how do I respond and why? What is going on in this heart of mine? Are the words coming out of my mouth and originating in my heart, words of anger or bitterness or judgment? And what am I not receiving that I think I'm entitled to? And why is it creating such anger in me? And as a side note, giving the cold shoulder or just not speaking, but silently stewing in sinful bitterness is just as damaging because all are rooted in the heart. So maybe at this point you're like me and you're feeling slightly discouraged. Maybe this is something you know you struggle with and you're feeling overwhelmed at the thought of needing to examine your heart so regularly and thoroughly. So let's consider Romans 8. Is this on your list? Yes, it is. It's on your notes. Romans 8, 5 through 11. We're going to look particularly at verses 10 and 11, which are on your notes. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I don't know how many of you remember when Scott Maxwell was teaching through Romans, particularly chapter 6. Highly recommend going back and listening to his section on verses 16 through 18. And I'll read that, read the passage for you right now. Romans 6, 16 through 18. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of a, for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We don't have to sin. We're free from it, right? And when we're faced with a choice of responding in a sinful way or choosing righteousness, we're free to choose to honor God. We don't have to live under the control of our own sinful nature. We can examine ourselves with joy because we realize we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at difficulties in life as sovereignly given opportunities to see this fruit matured by God's grace. Difficulties are not obstacles to the development of spiritual fruit. They're opportunities to see it grow. And it is never the loudness of our voice or the power of our words or the drama of the moment or even the strength of our vocabulary that causes change within people. God can use whispered words to produce thunderous conviction in a heart. So gentleness flows from knowing God and knowing his power. And gentle talk does not come from a person who is angry or looking to settle the score. It comes from the person who is speaking, not because of what I want from you, because of what I want for you. Gentle talk comes when I'm not speaking out of personal hurt or anger or bitterness, but out of self-sacrificing love, not because of how your sin affected me, but because your sin has ensnared you, and I long to see you freed from its snare. So I am not on a mission of selfish confrontation, but loving rescue. So now we're on point two, double I. Um, besides forsaking contention, we must also fight contention. And we can fight against the sin of contention by remembering God's character. He can only ever be kind and good. Always think what is best. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love hopes all things. Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1, 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Ask the Lord to show you what pleases him in your speech and what does not. We can then align our hearts with his and seek him for his grace to renew our minds in his truth. 
Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Look around you. Give thanks in all things. Maybe spend some time in Philippians or 1 Thessalonians. Continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. All right, we're moving on to page seven. So let's take a moment to evaluate our own hearts. So number three on your outline is self-evaluation. I'm going to read a couple of phrases here. I have them written on your notes. And just think about which of these phrases might apply to you. I frequently express gratitude for the benefits that I have received from God and others. Or, I frequently grumble about having what I don't want or wanting what I don't have. I build others up with words of praise, appreciation, and admiration. Or, I often hurt others with critical, belittling words. I'm quick to point out the failure of others. And I think sarcasm can fit in here. Words can build up and words can destroy. I'm quick to humble myself and seek forgiveness when I have wronged someone. Or, I tend to defend or justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong. I am faithful in praying for God to work in others' lives, like my husband, children, friends, parents, etc. Or, I spend more time talking to friends or counselors about the needs and the lives of those around me than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf. When provoked, I generally respond with a gentle answer. Or, I am easily provoked and I tend to respond with harsh words. So, like the rudder of a ship is very small in comparison to the size of the vessel, our tongues are a very small part of our bodies. James 3.5 says, <clears throat> So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So our tongue must be yielded to God as a tool of righteousness. Remember Romans 6.12-13, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So when we are wise with our words, when we are placing our trust in God, we are confident in his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. So we want to remember Christ's example. We read about this in 1 Peter 2.23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So you and I can build up our homes when we want what is best for others. And this just shows us again how desperately we need God and his word continually to make our hearts ready to respond this way, to always be pleasing to the Lord. We must seek to be peacemakers and reconcilers and building up our homes means choosing our words carefully. So don't give up now because you're feeling overwhelmed. Maybe this seems hard, it is, but there's hope. This is number four on your outline. There's gospel hope. So, we are almost out of here, but before we do, let's turn to 1 Peter, um, 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So another part of shepherding our hearts throughout the day, Anne talked about this, is thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of all who would believe. The gospel gives us a relationship with God based on the sinless life and sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees us to honestly face and acknowledge our sin. If we do not see our sin, if we do not acknowledge our sin, we will not see our need for him, and we will continue 
to trust in self-righteousness. The gospel reminds us that God no longer counts that sin against us. Our Father is a kind and loving master, but sin, left unchecked, or swept under a rug, or hidden in a closet, it might look okay, but like smoldering embers, it will soon erupt into a huge fire, and your home will be destroyed in an instant. So tearing down our homes takes time. Little by little, like a termite, or great big chunks like a wrecking ball, great damage takes time to rebuild. Romans 12.2 tells us, it's written here on your notes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So filling our minds with the world's thoughts like being disappointed or annoyed or prideful will only make disappointed or annoyed or prideful words come out of our mouths. God's word calls us to renew our minds, so to think like Christ. And that is what shepherding our hearts throughout the day looks like. And we can be women who speak kind, helpful words. Christ has equipped us to speak, to build up. We were bought with a great price. And the gospel is a call to forsake living according to the cravings of our sinful nature so that we might live for Christ. So... Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to pursue you diligently so that we can be wise women who have affections for you, who serve you, who trust in you, and that our homes might be built up for your glory. God, do a work in our hearts today. Help us to be humble and teachable, gentle, so that we can change and we can be women who bring you glory, love those around us, build up our homes and build up the body of Christ. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.